Book Four, Chapter Thirty Four of The Mystery of the Hasty Arrow by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bud, then the Deadly Flower, Part Two. Did she see a change in him? Did he come less frequently? Did he stay less long? Was there uneasiness in his eye, coolness, languor? No, no. It was her exacting heart which thus interpreted his look, which counted the days, forgot his many engagements, saw impatience in the quickness with which he corrected her faults in manner or language, instead of the old indulgence which met each error with a smile. Love cannot always keep at fever heat. He, the cynosure of the whole foreign element, had the world at his feet, here as in Lucerne. It needed no jealous eye to see this, while she, well, she had her attractions too, as had been often proved, and with God's help she would yet be a fit mate for him. What she now lacked she would acquire. She would watch these fine ladies who blushed with pleasure at his approach, and when her time of mourning was over she would astonish him with her graces and her appearance. For she knew how to dress, yes, with the best of them, and hold her head and walk like a queen, she would feel herself to be when once she bore his name. Patience, then, till she had stored her mind and learned the ways he was accustomed to in others. She had money enough now that her uncle was dead, and she could do things. Yes, but something had gone out of her face, and the ring hung loose on her finger. And he? Had her fears read him aright? Had he grown indifferent, or was he simply perplexed? Let us watch him as he paces his hotel room one glorious afternoon, now stopping to reread a letter he held in his hand, and now to gaze out with unseeing eyes to where the blue of the sea melts into the blue of the sky on the far horizon. Love had been sweet, but man has other passions and he is in the grip of one of the mightiest in men of his stamp, that all-engrossing, all-demanding one of personal ambition. Without solicitation, without expectation even, a hand had been held out to him, whose least grasp meant success, in the one field most to his mind, a political career under auspices which had never been known to fail. But there were conditions attached, conditions which a year before would have filled him with joy, but which now stood like a barrier between him and his goal, unless... But he was not ready to disavow his wife, trample upon her heart, nay, on his own as well, that is, without a struggle. For the third time he read the letter, which you will see, was from his mother. My son, I have an apology to make and a bit of good news to give you. When I urged you to give up Lucy and to seek distraction abroad, I felt that I was doing justice to your immaturity and saving you from ties which might very easily jeopardize your future happiness. But I have lately changed my mind. In seeing more of her, I have not only learned her worth, but the advantage such a woman would be to one of your tastes and promise. And she loves you more devotedly, perhaps, than you have loved her. 
How do I know this? Let me tell you of an interview I had with a certain relative of hers last night. I allude to her brother, and for a recognized boss, buried out of sight in politics, he has more heart in his breast than I have ever given him credit for. Not having children of his own, he has centered his affections on this choice little sister of his, and finding her far from happy, came to see me yesterday evening with this proposition. If I would consent to your union with Lucy, and withdraw my opposition to your immediate marriage, he would take your future in charge, and put you in the way of political advancement, only to be limited, as he says, by your talents, which he is good enough to rate very high. After this, how can I do otherwise than bid you follow your impulses and marry Lucy, in spite of the disparity of years to which I have hitherto taken exception? Were she as poor as she is accounted rich, I should say the same. Now that I have sounded the depths of her lovely disposition and the rare culture of a mind, which even those seven years have enriched beyond what is usual even in women of intellect. Her money does not influence me in her favor, nor does it weigh with me in my present opinion of her complete fitness for the position you are so eager to give her. That this will make you happy, I know. Let it hasten your return, which cannot be too speedy. This was the bombshell which had disturbed Carlton Roberts, complacency, bared his own soul to this horrified view, and revealed to him the weakness of his moral nature, which he had hitherto considered strong. For his first impulse was one of recoil, not only from the secret marriage, which shut him off from these new hopes, but from his youthful bride as well. He found himself weary of his flowery bonds, and eager for a man's life in his native city. Oh, why had he urged this immature girl to take the ride which had led him into slavery to one who could not advance him in life, however queen-like she moved and talked and smiled upon the world from the heights of her physical perfections. It was brain that was needed, an understanding like Lucy's, tempered like hers, by years, not months, of culture and refined association. It was at this point he paused in his restless walk and looked for inspiration to the far-off waters of the bluest of all seas. Suddenly he resumed his walk, then quickly stopping again, sat down at his desk with an air of desperate haste, began to write to his mother the announcement, It is too late. Unfortunately for your scheme, I am already. He never got any further. A fresh impulse drove him into the streets. He could not thus summarily settle his future fate. It meant too much to him. He must take time to think. His heart clamors loudly for its rights. He is only twenty-six, and in a rush of feeling, which should have been his salvation, he turned toward the nest among the flowers, where help was to be had, if help was to come at all, in this crisis of conflicting passions. The hour was noon, one which he had never chosen for a visit to Emmetrude. Would he find her in? Would she be in spirits to meet him? Would she look beautiful, worthy of his name, worthy of the greatest sacrifice a man can make for a woman? 
He half hoped that she would, that he would find his chains riveted and secure beyond the power of any force to break. As his musings faltered, he turned the knob of the little side door and went in. As he did so, a shower of rose leaves fell upon him from the vines enveloping the balcony. He shuddered slightly and passed down the hall. Everything was very still. She was asleep, lying on a couch in utter weariness or pain. She had drifted off into the land of dreams, and he felt that he had a moment of respite. He could look and weigh the question. Love or a quick success? A weakling's paradise or the goal of the strong man? Meanwhile, she was not as beautiful as he thought. But she was more touching, less robust, less bounteous of aspect, more childlike, more appealing, a woman who, if he were no more of a man than he appeared to be in this hurly-burly of pleasure and fashion, might in time do him credit and hold him back from follies. But he was not just the man these casual friends and admirers considered him. There was much more to him than that. He knew this better than Lucy did, or her powerful brother, or even his adoring mother. Great opportunities awaited him, and a large space in the affairs of men, if not of nations. Such confidence did he feel in himself at this fevered moment that he never doubted that eventually he would gain all this, even with the handicap of a good-looking but unsophisticated wife. But not quickly, step by step perhaps, and he was longing to take it all at a bound. Poor girl, and she lay there under his eyes, all unmindful of his conflict, or of the fact that her fate as well as his was trembling in the balance, unmindful though her dreams were, far from joyous, or why the tear welling from between her lashes as he gazed. She was alone in the house. He knew it by the complete silence. He could look and look and study her every feature without fear of interruption. Wait for her waking and be ready to meet her first glance of tender astonishment which might restore him to his better self. Drawing up a chair, he sat down, then started upright again with dilating eyes and a strange shadow on his brow. One of her arms lay uppermost, and on the hand, almost as fine as Lucy's but not quite, he saw the ring, his ring, and it hung loosely. The poor child was growing thin, very thin. If she were to hold her hand downward, he muttered to himself, I believe the ring would fall off. Did some stray glimpse of his own features, wearing a look never seen on them before, confront him from some nearby mirror? that he started so guiltily as his heart-murmur rose to his lips. Or was it at a thought, hideous but tempting, which held him, gained upon him, and soon absolutely possessed him, till his own hand went out stealthily, and with hesitations, toward those helpless fingers of hers, now approaching, now withdrawing, and now approaching them again, but not touching them, great as his impulse was to do so, for fear she should wake, while yet the devil gripped his arm and lit up baleful fires in his eyes. He remembered those words of hers. Have you ever thought that with the exception of this ring, 
No proof exists in all the world of our ever having been married. Remember them? He had not remembered them. He had heard them, sounding and resounding in his ears, to the whole room seemed to palpitate with them. Then the devil made his final move. Ermatrude shuddered, and her position changing, the hand which had been uppermost fell down at her side, and the ring slipped, left her finger, paused on the edge of the couch, then came the rest in his palm, held out to receive it. He had not drawn it from her hand. Fate had restored it. As he forced himself to look at it lying in his grasp, a faintness as death seized and held him for a moment, then this passed, and he slowly rose and step by step, with sidelong looks, and hair standing upright on his forehead, like one who has walked in blood, and sees the trail of guilt following him along the floor, he left her side, he left the room, he left the house, and the rose-leaves fell about him once more, maddening him with their color, maddening him with the memories inseparable from their sweetness, a sweetness which spoke of her, of love, and the attachment of a true heart, destined to grieve for a little while at least, for he was never going back, never, never. There was no eye to see, no tongue to tell him that speed, destined to flower into awful crime some dozen or more years later, put forth its first bud at this fatal hour. He wrote her a letter. He had the grace to do that. Addressing her simply as Emmetrude, he told her that he had been called home to enter upon the serious business of life, that he was not likely to come back, and as she was not really his wife, however pleasing the fiction had been in which they had both indulged, it seemed to him wiser to end their happy romance thus suddenly, while much of its glamour remained, than to linger on and see it decay day by day before their eyes till nothing but bitterness remained. He loved her, and he felt the wrench more than she did. But duty and his obligations as a man, etc., etc., till it ended in his signature, limited to initials like his love. Despicable, the work of a man without conscience or heart, yes, and he knew it, and for weeks his sleep was broken by visions, and his waking hours rendered dreadful by fears. How had she taken this cool assumption that the ceremony performed in the path of the snow was voided by lack of proof? To whom had she ascribed the loss of her ring? And what must she think of him? He had left Nice almost immediately. But wherever he went, in whatever hotel he stayed, or through whatever street he passed, he was always expecting to see her figure rise up before him in the majesty of innocence and outraged love. Thus several weeks passed, and seeing nothing of her, hearing nothing from her, a different apprehension darkened his days, and despoiled him of rest at night. Grief, if not shame, had killed her, and the weight of her fancied doom lay heavy on his heart. At last he could bear it no longer, and stealing back to Nice he entered it one dark night, and prepared to learn for himself what he feared to trust to the discretion of another. Alone with hidden face and heavily throbbing heart, he trod the familiar ways and encircled the familiar walls. 
Had she been there? But the windows were blank and the place desolate, and he fled the spot and the town, with his questions unasked and his fears unallayed. In two days he had sailed for home. With the ocean between them he might forget, and in time he did. As week followed week, and the silence he had half-trusted, half-feared, remained unbroken, his equanimity gradually returned, and he prepared to face the prospect of his new marriage much as a man who watches for a dreaded door to open, moves with restored confidence about his affairs when at last convinced that the door is padlocked and the key lost. One precaution and one only he was wise enough to take. He told his story to Lucy's brother and left it to him to say whether or not he should marry his sister. And the answer was yes, that if trouble came, he would see him through it. A marriage which could not be proved was no marriage. And as for anything else, Lucy's happiness must not be sacrificed to a boy's peccadilloes. What were a few wild oats sown by a man of his promise? And was this the end? Did Ermatrude accept her doom without a struggle? Let us see. One afternoon in June there entered the parlor of the old-fashioned mansion of the Roberts family, a lady who had asked to see Mrs. Roberts, on business of an important nature. Though plainly clad, her appearance possessed an elegance which ensured respect. But when alone and seated in the darkest corner of the great drawing-room, she put up a trembling hand to thrust back her veil. The countenance thus revealed betrayed an emotion hardly in keeping with the quiet bearing with which she had advanced under the servant's eye. His home, and these the surroundings amid which he had grown to manhood. Why should the sight of all this rouse emotions she believed eliminated by a treachery most cruel in the face of promises most sacred. Why, as she looked about, and noted object after object, which must have been there previous to his birth, did she see him as a child and a boy, and not as the man who had first won and then deserted her? She would not have had it so at this hour, when strength was needed rather than tenderness. But she could not help her nature, or still, the wild surgings of her rebellious heart, as this portrait seen upon the wall, challenged her constancy and whispered of the hour when his forever echoed her forever, and the compact for eternity was sealed. He had broken this compact, broken it soon, broken it before the honeymoon had passed. But she, was she to show no firmer spirit, whose love was of soul, and took no note of time. She was his wife, and acknowledged or unacknowledged, must yet prove to be his blessing, though he, he. But this would not do. The interview before her called for calmness. She would not add to the turbulence of her spirits by another glance at what brought back too much of the past to fortify her for the impending struggle. She had to do credit to his choice, to impress a difficult woman with her dignity as a wife. She must not shake or weep. Yet when she heard a step at the door, instinct told her to pull down her veil till the first greetings were over, a precaution 
for which she was deeply grateful, when, in another moment, a young woman entered, instead of her husband's mother, for whom she had asked, and whom she naturally expected to see. In the humiliation of the moment, her disappointment took words, and she muttered within herself, a companion or possibly a relative. I am to be put off with kindly excuses, beg to state my errand, rehearse my claims and my hopes to some gentle go-between. I have not the strength for that. I must see the mother, the mother. God give me wisdom and keep me calm, calm. Meanwhile, the young woman, she had instinctively called gentle, advanced into the center of the room. Mechanically, Emmetrude rose to meet her, and thus stepped into a better light. Tragedy came with her. This was impossible not to see, not to feel. But the warning which her aspect gave passed as she spoke and said in tones, a little tremulous, perhaps, but with an air of perfect courtesy, I had hoped to see Mrs. Roberts herself. The smile with which this was greeted the flush of pride and the joy of possession, which lit the other's pleasing features as she replied, I am Mrs. Roberts, should have carried the truth to Emmetrude. But they did not. She looked surprised, baffled, and after the briefest hesitation observed, I am a stranger in this city, and have doubtless made some mistake. The Mrs. Roberts I have called to see, and I was told she lived here, is the mother of a gentleman of the name of she could not speak it, but the other could. Carlton, she asked, and at Emmetrude's agitated nod, added with friendly interest, This is her home, but she has left it for a while to us. I am Mr. Carlton Roberts' wife. There are blows which prostrate, and there are others which sear, but leave the body intact. Feet still supporting it, eyes still gazing ahead unmoved lips moving with mechanical exactness, and sometimes still retaining their smile. Only the soul which gave life to all of this is dead. The image is there, but the spirit is gone, and if sufficiently preoccupied, the one who struck the blow sees no change. So it was with Emmetrude and Lucy. We are looking for Mother to return next week, added the latter, as Emmetrude stood stark and silent before her. Would you like to leave a message for her? At these words uttered with the sweetness of a rich and sympathetic nature, the soul returned to Emmetrude's body. With a long and earnest look, which took in the full measure of the other's personality, radiant with happiness and the consciousness of an assured wifedom, she answered softly, No, I will leave no message and turned as if to go. "'Nor any name?' queried Lucy, eyeing with admiration the noble lines of a figure whose perfect proportions her own could never hope to compete. "'Nor any name?' came back, in indescribable accents from the doorway. Lucy paused, and gazing in vague trouble after her rapidly disappearing visitor, murmured to herself, "'Who is she?' but the one who could have answered her was gone. Carlton, you seldom see such a woman. Younger than I, she had the poise of a woman of thirty. Who could she have been? Describe her. 
I wish I could. I hardly saw her face. It was her figure, her voice, her way of moving and holding herself. I felt as small and quiet as a little mouse beside her. Only I was happy, and she was not. That much I feel now that I recall her look in leaving. Was she an American or, or foreign, he asked, hiding his trouble, for a great fear had seized him. She had an English accent, which added very much to her charm. Forget her. For a moment his accent was almost fierce. Then he laughed the matter off, assuring this bride of a month that she made him cross with her self-depreciation, that there was no one of a finer mien and manner than herself, the chosen of his heart, upon whom he always looked with pride. Which subtle tribute to what was her greatest charm accomplished its end. She did forget the stranger. But he did not. He knew what was before him and prepared himself for the inevitable meeting, which would be followed by what? Not by what he had every right to expect, and evidently did. Emmetrude had learned all she would, both of his marriage and of the woman who had supplanted her, and had made her resolve. This he saw as they came together in the isolation of a quiet corner of the park, and so was not greatly surprised, though a little moved, as after the first few words, and with an earnest look, she said, I am your wife, I, Emmetrude Roberts, married to you in the sight of God and man. I cannot prove it, but as you once said, our hearts know it and will continue to know it as long as either of us live. But I am not going to obtrude my claims upon you, Carlton, or stand like a specter in your path. Had this woman you have deceived been weak or foolish or unloving, or indeed anything but what she is, I might have held to my rights and insisted upon a recognition which would have profited you in the end. But I cannot shame that woman. I can neither shame her nor bring her to grief. You have broken one heart, but you shall be saved the remorse of breaking two. I had rather suffer myself. I am alone in the world. I have means. I can ultimately be useful and face good men and women without fear. Why then should I drag down to the dust one as innocent as myself, or take from you what may make you the man I once thought you, and hope to see you again. But that I may have strength for this, and for all the sacrifices it involves, you must declare here and now, in this open park where we stand, with no one within sight, much less within hearing, that I am your wife. You are my wife. It is enough. Now I can say what otherwise could never have left my lips. I love you, Carlton, love you to eternity as I promised, but I shall never seek you again, and you can go on your way unperturbed. I have consolations here, laying her hand on her breast. It will no longer be my portion to watch your face for signs of falling regard. What I have is mine, and that is the undying memory of two months of perfect happiness. She would have said more but she saw that he had been greatly shaken. She feared the renewal of a flame not yet altogether extinct in a heart which once beat for her alone. 
and so contending herself with a low farewell, she was turning swiftly away when one last thought made her pause and say, I cannot return your ring. It is lost. I was careless with it, and it fell unnoticed from my hand. But tonight I will send you back the little clock which unites our initials. Destroy it if you will, but if some sentiment bids you keep it, let it be this one and no other. I recall Emmetrude only that I may be faithful to Lucy. With a low cry his head fell upon his breast in extreme self-abasement. Then he slowly lifted his eyes, and seeing in her face a full knowledge of his sin, murmured in overwhelming shame and contrition, You know me for the wretch I am. I have the ring. It fell from your hand into mine one day while you lay asleep. I do not ask for forgiveness, but this I promise you, Emmetrude. If that little clock comes back, I will make a place in it for this ring, and neither clock nor ring shall leave me again while I live. Instinctively her hands went out to him, then they fell back on her breast. God will hold you to that promise, she said, and melted away from his sight in the midst which had been gradually enveloping them without being seen by either. Thus the struggle ended for him, which for her had simply begun. Not till she found herself in the South with her girlfriend, Antoinette Duclos, that she discovered the closest bond which can unite man and woman held her in spite of her late compact with Carlton Roberts. Should she reassert her rights and demand that the father should recognize his child? Her generous heart said no. The old arguments held good. She appealed to Antoinette for advice. The result we know. When Antoinette's own child died at birth, she took Emmetrude's to her heart and brought it up as her own. There was little difficulty in this, as the professor had already yielded to a southern fever and lay at rest in a New Orleans cemetery. And this brings us to another episode. The widow in fact and the widow in heart stood face to face above a sleeping infant. They were both dressed for traveling, and so was the babe. The dismantled rooms showed why. Young still, for the years of either's romance had been few. Each face, as the other contemplated it, told the story of sorrow which time, for all its kindliness, would never efface. But the charm of either remained perceptible at this hour, as perhaps it would never be again to the same extent. Antoinette basked in the light of Emmetrude's beauty, ennobled by renunciation, and Emmetrude in that wonderful look in her friend's plain face, which came at great crises and made her for the moment the equal of the best. They had said little, and they said little now, as is the way of the strong amongst us, when an act is to be performed which wrings the heart but satisfies the conscience. The child was legitimate. It must not grow up under a shadow. To ensure its welfare and raise no doubt in its own mind, as it grew in knowledge and feeling, the two women must separate. No paltering with his duty and no delay. A month of baby cries and baby touches might weaken the real mother, 
It should be now. It should be today. But first, a final word, a parting question. It was uttered by Emmetrude. You will go back to France? Yes, I can easily live there. And you, Emmetrude? To New York. I shall never be far from him. But he and I will never meet. My world will not be his world. I shall make my own place. As Emmetrude Taylor? As Mrs. Emmetrude Taylor. I am a wife. I shall never forget that fact. And the child? Will you never come to see it? Emmetrude's head fell, and she stood a long time without answering. Then, with a steady look, she calmly said, I can think of but one contingency which might shake my resolution to leave her yours without the least interruption from me. If he, Antoinette, if he were left alone and childless, I might see my duty differently from now. You must be prepared for that. Emmetrude, when you send me this little shoe, see, I will leave one on and give you the other. I shall know that you are coming, or that you want the child. My life is yours as I once promised. And do you think I would hold back the child? Again their hands met, as once before, in that strong clasp which means, Trust me to the death and beyond it. With Antoinette it was to the death, as we have seen. Warned by Emmetrude of the appalling result of their plan to bring father and child together, and entreated to fly, lest her story should imperil the secret upon the preservation of which his very life now hung, she answered to the call as she had promised, and thus acquitted her debt, though she failed to save him. Of her previous act in disfiguring his photograph in her temporary lodging place, we shall never know the full story. The picture had been hers for years, given her by Emmetrude on their parting, so that the child should not be without some semblance of her father, even if she should not know him as such. And it was to secure this clue to their now doubly dangerous secret that Madame Duclos ransacked her baggage previously to her flight from the New York Hotel. But whether its destruction in the peculiar manner, we know, was the result of simple precaution or of a feeling of antagonism so strong against this destroyer of her beloved's peace that it had to be expended in some way before she felt strong enough for that supreme sacrifice in his favor toward which events seemed hurrying her, may be known in eternity, but will never be told in time. And Emmetrude, what of her? Alone, robbed of husband and child and friend, where shall we look for her in this world of extreme tribulation? Search the hospitals of France, where they press closest to the trenches. There you will find the woman who, losing all, has found much. Blessing and blessed, the angel of the battlefield whom the bullets spare, since her work on earth is not yet accomplished. End of chapter 34, part 2 End of book 4 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas. End of the Mystery of the Hasty Arrow by Anna Catherine Green.